Hey everyone, we're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we have a very, very special guest joining us in the Hit Factory, renegade economist and host of the Upstream podcast. Della Duncan is here today. Della, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Um, we uh, we love Upstream, first and foremost. <laughs> and could you maybe tell uh, our listeners, if, if they haven't heard it before, a little bit about what Upstream is, what you all do, and, and the, the mission behind it? Yeah. I was studying alternative economics in graduate school at a very special place called Schumacher College in England. And I was just so it was it was taking the red pill about economics. And I just felt like I wanted to share out what I was learning. And Robert is a phenomenal audio engineer and journalist. And so he and I collaborated together to create the Upstream podcast first as a way of just sharing out the, the journey of alternative economic thinking and practice. But do want to introduce the theme because I think it's related to this conversation. So the Upstream podcast comes from a metaphor. Uh, the metaphor, I believe, comes from public health, or at least that's where I've heard it. And the metaphor is that you imagine that you're standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore, but you look up and you see more people floating down the river drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore. But pretty soon you look up and there's just so many people floating down the river drowning and you call for help, you get others involved. But eventually someone or some people have to go upstream to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. So this metaphor, which again, I first heard with public health, I really appreciated the the metaphor for going upstream to the root causes. And we, Robert and I, embarked on this journey upstream around the economic challenges of our time. So homelessness, sense of precariousness, climate change, ecological devastation, destruction, and just, yeah, when we go upstream from that, what do we see? And we've been on that journey ever since. I have also come to kind of understand a second meaning of, of upstream just in my own consuming of the of the show and its content, which is that I also think about how challenging it often is to confront some of these ideas and uh, and break through a lot of the propaganda, the socialized norms, the things that work to deconstruct a lot of the things um, that you all are talking about on the show that want to shed light on, you know, the the sources of our problems and and how things have come to be the way that they are. And so the upstream meaning for me is also the second, the second meaning of just like kind of feeling the struggle a little bit. Not, not that it's uh, not a worthwhile struggle, but that it does often feel like we're swimming upstream when we're talking about these things and trying to break through really hard-worn, very pervasive perspectives. Thank you, Carly. I had never heard of that before, but I love it. And it, it reminds me of a I think it's called the moving sidewalk of oppression analogy, where if you're simply on a moving sidewalk, you know, for example, at an airport, uh, then you're actually continuing or perpetuating oppression, racism, et cetera. But to actually go against it, you have to turn around and walk against the moving sidewalk of oppression. So thank you for, yeah, you just 
made me think that maybe the upstream can be a more ecological metaphor for that that example. Thank you. I think there's many layers to it, which is why it, it works so well. It's beautiful. Well, and as you said, Della, it fits perfectly, I think, into uh, the focus of today's conversation, the film that we have chosen to talk about. Um, little indie feature didn't really make any waves, underseen, I would say, in the 90s. Um, it is uh, the Wachowskis' uh, The Matrix from 1999. Very little known. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, if there's one film that I feel like more people should see and talk about on a regular basis, it's it's this one um, because uh, it's it's a hit. It's a, it's a great film. Um, of course, I'm kidding. It made tremendous waves when it came out. It was pretty revolutionary, um, unlike pretty much anything anyone had ever seen before kind of revolutionized uh i I think a a little bit harder kind of sci-fi in the mainstream um and 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 made this i think a little bit more palatable to a a wider audience um had some very heady themes in it Um, and then of course from a technical aspect as well the film itself and and the way that it uh articulates its action, the the special effects, the the visual trickery of it all, it was certainly something to behold. And I'm curious, Della, what your history is with this film, when you first saw it, what your feelings were about it, and maybe how they have evolved up to today, 20 some odd years later. Yeah, I definitely remember it as a, a favorite film of the 90s. So when you all contacted me, I was like, The Matrix was certainly up there. And in fact, I was surprised that you all haven't covered it before just because it feels like such a classic. And yes, I, of course, do remember the uh, visual trickery, as you said, Aaron, I like that word, uh, the, particularly the where he's, he's bending backwards and kind of dodging the bullets, that scene. Uh, but I also do remember the, the more, the larger philosophical questions, red, red pill, blue pill, for example, and all of that. So really deep questions around freedom and slavery, around choice and fate, and around ignorance, and ignorance is bliss, that theme too. And love, like Mm -hmm, in rewatching it, I think I forgot how much of the actual love story it was. So actually, that was something I didn't remember. Um, interestingly, but yeah, certainly remember it as a favorite. And then I also have to say, I do also remember the clothing. Like I remember the 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 sunglasses. Uh, yeah. And the, like I, I see them as like Oakleys, which I had a pair, yeah. you know, back back in the nineties. And also the leather. <laughs> so yeah. lots of leather. So much leather. I remember, you know, in in the lead up or you know the marketing around the sequels to Nokia, like put out those like phones that like opened vertically rather than flipped and everyone wanted those for a minute as well it was aesthetically like very of the moment although i i we were watching blade recently and blade came out with wesley snipes in 96 or 97 right I think it was 97 yeah and i was like there's a lot that the matrix feels indebted to here there's like long leather coats that he's wearing it's kind of that green sort of like sepia tone in the movie and there's um and he's got those sunglasses the matrix is of course wholly its own thing but it's interesting to think about a lot of movies in the late 90s in particular moving aesthetically and something we talk about a lot on this show thematically toward something that felt a little bit more anti-establishment felt a little bit more 
dystopian, quite literally in some cases, and also just kind of like this ambient anxiety of of some threat looming. Um, it's a it's a theme that is pervasive in a lot of films in the late 90s. And um, and I think that's because it's reflecting something very real that we were feeling um, as a society, particularly with the end of history narrative kind of coming to an end uh, and us really feeling the tension between this story we'd been told and the very real casualties that we were facing in our daily lives. And this film is just peak that. And one of the reasons that we actually haven't done it yet, Della, is because there's so much to talk about. There's also just, I think we, when we talked about it, we wanted to do it with someone like yourself who comes with a certain background uh, of knowledge in, in a lot of these sort of anti-capitalist and capitalist critiques because the film is so steeped in that. So uh, that's to say we've been waiting to do it. <laughs> And we're doing it now with you and we could not be more excited. I will, I'll piggyback off of that really quickly and say that, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about a couple of films in this particular era of the nineties. We did dark city um, at the beginning of the year. We just did existence with a great guest not long ago as well, which came out within like a, a, a few weeks of the matrix and, and deals with this sort of simulated reality and, and different layers of existence and the way that we embody different selves within that. Um, but as, as Carly said, we have probably mentioned the matrix in almost every episode of this, of this show um, without talking about it. So, so when you came to us with it, I, you know, for a long time, I, I think that we had considered maybe not doing it just because <laughs> of how influential, influential it was, how much it's been talked about. But there is a thing that, that we were discovering as we were preparing for this conversation, which is that I think the anti-capitalist messages, the more revolutionary kind of themes of the film are under-theorized in a lot of the conversations. I think that it goes a lot towards the philo the philosophy, towards the sort of simulation theory elements of this film. Or even uh, the theological readings of the the movie. Right. And and I think that in, you know, kind of our, our more current era, a lot of this film and its its subject matter and its themes have been co-opted, unfortunately, by the right um, and, and transitioned into a, a much more kind of atomized, much more individualistic idea of liberty. Um, but that to say, in short, is, is why we're talking about it and, and why we think that this is now, I think, very, very ripe territory for, for analysis. I think that it's okay for us, actually, in, in this episode to maybe skip the plot summary. For, for the for... five people that haven't seen it. <laughs> And and just dig directly into uh, to some of of the discussion here, and I think a, a good place to start is maybe with this idea of emancipation, this idea of of liberty, free will, um, and and separating oneself from an oppressive system. I don't know exactly where to go with that yet, <laughs> but um, of course, you know, like Neo is is somebody Keanu Reeves' character who begins in. Uh, very kind of cliched white working proletariat sort of like office job, um, you know, and, and and he sort of moonlights as this other person. He's he's liberated by the internet, which is of course still in sort of a fledgling state at the at the tail end of the '90s here, and something that that became a place, you know, in in its in its uh, nascent kind of era, a, a place where people could do this. It 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 had this 
promise, I think, of being a place of, of freedom, a place where people could go and be their true selves, a place unregulated, a place where anyone could talk about, discover, and, and organize around anything. And this film kind of inverts that a little bit by making that place the oppressive system, much like it is, I think, in today, um, much the way that it's been co-opted and, and sort of balkanized by corporations, a lot of these like huge entities that now just control the way that we communicate in that space. I'm reminded of the quote by Margaret Thatcher, uh, Tina, as it's, as it's called, but there is no alternative. And, you know, she's referring to neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism, but I do feel that, yeah, a lot of folks see when, when they look at the economy as capitalism is this ever pervasive, ever dominant thing, then both there is no alternative that exists already. And then there also would be no future alternative. So yeah, mm-hmm. that, that certainly came up and yeah, just want to uplift. There's two feminist economists, Gibson Graham, who wrote under the same pen name, Gibson Graham. And they speak about when, yeah, when we talk about capitalism in that way, we give it more power than we need to. And they actually say that uh, there are many other economies that we perform in, perform and participate in every day. So when mm. we give a ride to someone, that's the sharing economy. When we go to the library, that's, you know, the sharing economy or the mm-hmm. gift economy. When we care for someone, that's the feminist economy. Go into a worker cooperative or a credit union, that's the new economy or the solidarity economy or the cooperative economy. Mm. So, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think definitely in terms of capitalism and the matrix and the ever-present nature of it and, and yeah, who, who are we serving and what are we slave to and what is our prison? And also just reminded of the scene with Agent Smith, with Morpheus and Agent Smith, where the agent actually reveals that he feels that he is in a prison, mm-hmm. that, that his capturing of Morpheus and getting the codes is what would then liberate him. So it's, it's that everyone, you know, whether it's the agents or the people in the Matrix or the people who have to kind of hide underground, they're all imprisoned in this way. So, yeah, that's another reason why Neo's enlightenment, so to speak, is so powerful and liberating. The point that you bring up about a sort of parallel term, I guess, is capitalist realism, right? This idea that we cannot imagine an end to capitalism we we would sooner imagine our own deaths right and there's a pretty explicit and also less explicit references to emancipation and liberation from this system in the movie comes in the form of something you can't see something you have to believe that isn't shown to you in the matrix and also this idea that it's it's something that hasn't been tried before or that it it hasn't existed previously and there's a very explicit line in in the film when neo is sort of getting his shit together and he's going back in to save morpheus and trinity says to him no one's ever done anything like this before and he says, I know, and that's why it's going to work. I loved that that is very explicitly calling to this idea that we we often come back to on the left, which is that the solutions to these problems do not exist and cannot exist within the system. We have to imagine something that we may not even have experienced wholly before. And we have to imagine something that goes beyond the scriptures of what we can see and feel and touch. And that is one of the themes in the movie that that cycles up many times that, you know, what's in front of us 
is the thing that's constraining and we have to actually exist beyond uh, beyond that that world in order to find solutions. And the other thing you're making me think about um, is related to a recent episode on Upstream where you all were speaking to Raj Patel and Jason, I'm misremembering his last name. Jason W. Moore. Jason W. Moore, yes. And this these terms, capitalos, uh, capit. Capitalocene? Capitalocene. <laughs> I always trip over it. Capitalocene and Anthropocene came up. I'm thinking about these two terms in the context of the conversation you reference with Smith. And as at the end of the movie, when he's speaking with Morpheus and he's like, leave me with him. I'm going to have like a one-on-one dude moment with this guy. And he's admitting to him, I feel trapped. You're my only way out of here. Etc. But he's also explaining to him this revelation that he had, that he does not see humans as mammals, but that he in fact sees humans as a virus and uh, something that, you know, goes to every place it can, consumes its resources and, uh, and then moves on. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species. I realized that... You're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. The only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. What Smith gets wrong is that that is not inherent to humanity. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the difference between uh, the Anthropocene and the Capitolocene. And, um, and in that entire exchange, what I want to put next to every sentence Smith says is an asterisk that says, under a capitalist system, right? Under a capitalist system, we he makes the point, humans define their reality by misery and suffering. It is only that we are socialized mm-hmm. under capitalism to believe in precarity, to believe in suffering as a necessary part of the system functioning, that we do not take something as real if it is painless or easy or if there's abundance. And I've seen that scene a million times. And it was because of that episode that you guys had that I read that scene very differently and realized that Smith is actually wrong. He's misattributing uh, a trait that humans have under a particular system of organization and economy as something inherent to humans. Um, and I just, I just really love that I think even the Wachowskis know on some level that Smith is wrong about that because they do show us that humans are organized differently when they aren't constrained by the system and that they can exist in harmony. Yeah, absolutely. I totally thought about that too. And yeah, just to say, yeah, it was either Raj Patel or Jason W. Moore. They said, it's not all humans, right? That, that are the not problem. Not all humans. Yeah. And 
And I remember, because I've heard this a few times, often when I give presentations around alternative economics, folks say, well, overpopulation. And Jason W. Moore and Raj Patel, they, they, they actually give the kind of, uh, it can be very racist undertones to that overpopulation piece, uh, historically and also in present. But they also, you know, they, they allude to this, this, uh, this quote or this equation that I've heard that I love, which is called the IPAT equation, which is I equals impact, like let's say human impact on the planet, I equals PAT, population times affluence times technology. And what that mm-hmm. what that is saying is yes, population number of individuals does have an influence on human impact, but it's actually affluence per person and who has affluence, right? The one person and ninety nine, right? How many billionaires do we have right now, et cetera? But also technology and technology can be, I think of it as a decimal, so it actually can be supportive and helpful for living well on this planet and it can also be harmful to living on this planet but I, I i find that as a very helpful thing to to say to people about this overpopulation as as a problem and yes their their conversation um and their book i think it's called the history of the world and seven cheap things really great yeah reframing us from yeah not the anthropocene but instead the capitalocene putting the onus on the the system and not right. humans yeah Right. I will never think about a chicken nugget the same way again. That's what I said. <laughs> um, but while while we're on the subject of this, I I do want to talk a little bit more about these interactions between Smith and Morpheus. And I know we're jumping ahead in the film a little bit, but I am so fascinated by this particular uh, this particular sequence here. A little bit of a nerdy note, going outside of the actual text of this film i'm thinking about like the the sort of canon history that they write for the matrix and and in that history the original matrix is produced to enslave a a group of humans who are already in existence right they they take over they win the battle they basically cut us open and start poking and prodding around our brains to find out what makes us tick and what generates the most energy and then plug those people in and smith recounts the origins of the matrix to Morpheus in this first scene and says, when we first built it, it was a perfect system. There was no suffering. There was no misery. It was everybody living in harmony and humans rejected it. They could not see a world without that strife. And it, it, you know, recalls to me the, the, this idea that it is a conditioned thing, right? That he is, as Carly said, misattributing something that has been socialized into our nature or into our belief system, this idea of precarity, and attributing it to something inherent about humanity. So much so that then they continue to socialize those who are born in and exist in the matrix as they produce new humans with the same conceit, with the same idea of the system, of the oppression of it, of the precarity of it all. Um, and I thought that that part was so fascinating, knowing that extra sort of like, you know, a, a, that externality, that that other, you know, contextuality to it all, I guess, um, and thinking about it in that way, because it is, it's, it's really fascinating here thinking about, you know, he even says, we we then went about building this thing to to mimic and mirror back to you the the apex of, of your civilization. Right. And... Uh, you know, thinking in a lot of ways about 1999 as that moment, right? Like, like you know, we were starting to maybe respond to the afterglow of the end of history, but very much, you know, neoliberalism had had its sort of 
definitive victory over communism and, and became sort of the distinguished world order. And for, you know, the machines to misinterpret this thing as being the height of what's possible and the height of what we define as, as human achievement sets off the tone of the place and of the system for the rest of it, for however many generations beyond we are at the point that, that the matrix comes into existence and, and that the film takes place in. I also want to, I want to ask you a little bit um, more about this idea of technology as this thing that if we think about surveillance capitalism and this movie's comments on that, there's the read with this film that technology is uh, the, the thing that we as humans um, create the further we go down in this progress, this inexorable march of capitalism. We create it to allow for more freedom, to allow for more ease, right? But what it ends up doing is often furthering our own alienation, heightening the precarity by automating things, and also creating us, uh, turning us further into these things that can be exploited, exploited for energy, exploited for data. Um, and you touched a little bit on this when you were referencing the, the uh, conversation with, with Raj and Jason. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about this idea of, you know, our sort of subsumption of technology and the ways in which it is both enslaving us and entertaining us. Yeah, when I when I think about systems change and how to change a system, the main text that comes up for me is Danella Meadows' essay, Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. And in it, she they're kind of acupuncture points to change a system, and she ranks them in order of effectiveness. And towards the top, she says, one of the highest leverage points is to change the paradigm or the worldview. And this really, in kind of going upstream, I really feel like, what are our worldviews or paradigms around things? And can we shift things there? And so, you know, I, I think, you know, Erin, to your point, going back to some of the things not in the film, but that we can find around the history of the matrix. Uh, one thing that I found that was interesting was human civilization when the machines were the, I think, domestic servants of the people mm -hmm. kind of before yes. the upright, their uprising, they, the humans were supremacy, like supreme over the the robots and there was even a reference i read somewhere about there were some um machine rights activists which is really interesting and then the, you know this thing flipped and so now the the programs or the machines are now supremacy supremacy they have supremacy over the humans and so why i say this in terms of technology is i really think it's about our relationship to it and our intention behind it and E.F. Schumacher, whose name is the name that inspired the school that I went to, he, he wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered. And in it, he has this chapter mm -hmm. called Appropriate Technology. And in it, he just he says, you know, what's our relationship to it? And do we want to serve the machines and the technology or do we want them to support our our human and planetary flourishing? You know, so I think I think the the if I were to go upstream from this question around technology, it's are, do we view ourselves as supreme over something over humans mm. or machine? Do we view ourselves in relation? Do we have respect and reverence for the planet or not? Do we you know, do we see ourselves, as Thomas Berry would say, as in a universe that's a collection of objects or a communion of subjects? 
right? Mm. So I, 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 yeah, I, I definitely don't. And that's why when I said the iPad equation, I don't see technology as necessarily always a positive number, meaning that it's always a negative impact. I think technology mm-hmm. can be very supportive. So yeah, I think to, to your question, I think it's really about our relationship to it, but it certainly can be supportive of human and planetary flourishing in an ideal form. Yeah. And you're also making me realize that later in the subsequent films, we actually see examples of technology helping the people that live in Zion to flourish. And there's even a a very literal conversation about their relationship with the machines. Are we dependent on them? Are they dependent on us? And yeah, I think you're right. It is really about that under a capitalist system, our relationship with technology is one that inherently bears antagonism the farther down that road you go, but that there there are examples, um, even in the movie's text, of that not being the case. I would say it's it's our relationship with technology, but even more so, it's our relationship with, with what is the goal of our system. Mm. So if we are inherently profit motivated, if we see profit as an end and not a means to an end, if we see money as an end, not a means to an end, it's how are we measuring success, development, wealth, you know, progress. And if we if we view that as infinite growth and growth of product, sorry, growth of profit, growth of income, you know, individual level, societal level, then technology is that which supports that. But if we view ourselves as, you know, how do we live well? How do we live equitably? How do we live sustainably? How do we meet human needs within the boundaries of the planet, right? And how do we do that equitably for those who, who you know, need more, for example, or reparations that are needed, so historical wrongs, mm-hmm. then, then technology serving that would look so different. Right. I, uh, I I want to interrogate this this part that that's coming up for me a little bit more. I, I'm thinking about what we think at first in the film is Neo and Morpheus in the Matrix, but turns out to be yet another program, another simulation, another training exercise. The the scene with the woman in the red dress. The lesson, of course, is is Morpheus explaining to Neo that there are all of these people operating within the system who are not ready yet to be woken up, that they are inured so deeply and so intrinsically to the system to the program that they will fight to maintain it they will fight for its existence and he says you know in in a, in a very absolute sort of way if you are not one of us you are one of them implying you know the, the agents you know the the uh, enforcing vestiges of the machine and and of the program and i was curious Della, what what your take is on that distinction, you know, because I, I think that there is, of course, you know, a very sort of militant uh, arm of the left that feels this way. And, and, and you know, I'm, th- I'm thinking about allyship. I'm thinking about the ways to achieve the goals of that that economic project and of that sort of like left movement and shift in our society and and wondering where you fall on that. You know, it, are, are the people that aren't one of us against us or is it more about, you know, uh, the, the, the ultimate project of, of the liberation and of the waking up. Yeah, I have a, a quote that relates to this, actually. It's from Alexander Solnitsyn, and he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. And through every human heart, the line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even in hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. 
And why I read that is because my understanding of this is that we all have values within us. There, We have all the values. We have intrinsic values of connection with one another, altruism, kindness, compassion, empathy. We have values of connection with nature. And we also have values, extrinsic values. So values like power, power over, or image, wealth, fame, right? We all, we have all of that. And I think that we both have human personal choice of which we want to activate. But I also think our cultures activate different ones. Like I've, I've had experiences where I'm in, maybe you say on a camping trip or more connected with nature, and I feel my intrinsic values more activated. And then I've had mm. times when I've stepped into a very heavily uh, advertised space, and all of a sudden, my extrinsic values are activated. So yeah, I, I don't see uh, the, the line dividing good and evil being person to person, but more what's activated within people. And this, this connection or this uh, false comfort in business as usual, uh, it is a false comfort. It may feel like, you know, if I just continue on my daily life and not ask too many questions and all of this, it can feel very comfortable. But actually, I think folks are very, very much usually unaware of the, the things that capitalism is doing to our minds. Like the, the amount of difficulty one would feel if they really tapped into it in a capitalist enterprise. Right. I think that's why. Yes. And, and I, we're talking about class consciousness, really, um, in a lot of ways. And actually, this is one question I want to ask both of you, because I was thinking about it myself, is what does the red pill and the blue pill mean to you? What mm. is that choice? Like what, what when you see that image, what question or what reality choices do you see in that film? And I asked the audience, too, but I'm curious what you both think, because I have a thought of things that came up for me. I think there's the sort of obvious surface level of the red pill quite simply um, meaning class consciousness, as you said, and uh, the blue pill meaning, you know, this sort of maintenance of the system, being comfortable in that, in that prison. But in terms of choices associated with each, with each, because this movie is about choice, there's a line that Morpheus says, I think at the, toward the end of the film, and it's when Neo goes in and uh, saves him and they've sort of regrouped um, and he's beginning to believe, you know, all, all the things about himself and all the things about the, the people he's with and the, the system that he's learning about. And Morpheus says something to the effect of, um, you know, there's knowing the path and then there's walking the path. For me, the red pill is not just about consciousness. It's not just about class consciousness and awareness. It also comes inherently with action. Um, and the movie tells us that this action must be violent. This action must be militant to a certain extent and that it must exist outside of the system to a certain extent. There are ways in which um, the protagonists operate within the system and use some of its uh, constraints to their advantage. And I think there are lots of real world allegories for that when you're fighting revolution. Um, but most of their upending of the, the structures of power comes from choices and actions and ideas that exist outside of the system. So the red pill for me means awareness coupled with action and action looks different for lots of people. And, and I think there's something that I've respond to and, and I've sort of bristled at 
you know, in my own journey um, of radicalization on the left, which is that some people have a very clear idea of what they define as a litmus test for what, how committed you are to revolution and, um, and, oh, action can only look like this one thing. But I, I don't think that's true. What we see in the movie is that everyone has a part to play. Not everyone is the one. Not everyone goes about upending the system the way that Neo does, but they all do take action in their own way. And I think about the real world analogy, which is that two years ago, action for me, working against the system, looked very different than what it looks like today. That's a long-winded way of me saying that I think the red pill um, is about awareness and action, more broadly speaking, action toward the impetus of upending the system um, and breaking through the constraints of the system, but that that's individualized through collective action, which is another thing we should talk about. I have a personal experience within the system and within my own response to it, but I very much need other people in order to get things done. And, and we see that quite literally with Neo. He is the one Right, and I think a lot of people misread that as uh, giving him this sort of Jesus martyrdom status. Right. Uh, he's the one, but not the only. But one. he's not. He can't. He literally can't do anything in the movie without other people, and it's. I just love it, and it's something that I think so many people miss throughout all three films. Neo's actualization uh, as the one is only enabled by. Uh, his group's actions and by other people around him. Anyways, that's sort of my read on on the red pill, blue pill. I would love to hear your thoughts. Erin, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I'll just I say I forgot that about him for a second. That's okay. I, I think that I, I agree, you know, that, that the red pill, there's an, an inherent sense of, you know, you see how far this, rab this rabbit hole goes, you know, as, as Morpheus says, um, that oh, it's and, not and uh, Neo's line at the end. Sorry, I'm just realizing he says, "We show you what's possible. Where you take it from there is your own choice." Yes, exactly. And so I think that there is uh, action inherent in in that choice. To add a, to add a layer to this that we can continue to discuss, I wonder about what the blue pill would do. Uh, because, you know, the, the Cypher, you know, the Joe Pantoliano's character who ends up betraying them and, and selling out, you know, in, in inevitably gives away a lot of his, uh, you know, defies the, the revolution and decides that he wants to be plugged back in. He decides that he wants to give up the struggle and go back into a system where the oppression is obvious, but in which he's has all these material things that make him feel happy. Or, you know, that, that he presumes will give his life meaning and purpose beyond what he's feeling now. And I'm wondering, though, with that character, if there was ever really a route for that to happen. And with Neo, if he were to take the blue pill, what would happen? Like, is it a memory wipe? And if so, how much of your memory has to be removed in order for that part of you intrinsic to this curiosity that makes you butt up against the seams of this artifice all the time, what part of you has to disappear in order for that to be the case, in order for you to go back to a quote-unquote normal life, right? And so, you know, I, there's another element of this in a question that I pose when I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it, which is like, was there a real choice there? The red pill is the action and the choice of doing something, and the blue pill seems like it is the decision to know everything and simply live within the artifice. 
and so there's there's that to it too you know where i wonder is like i i, I don't know that the blue pill was ever even really a choice <laughs> to to confuse and and uh problematize this idea of of you know the the, the choice and the free will That's there as well my memory was that the blue pill or the going back for Cypher would mean he would forget everything though, is that mm-hmm. he would, yeah. So he would go back to sleep and yeah, that's that ignorance is bliss part. And just to say one thing I found interesting, his, his other name Cypher is Mr. Reagan. We, we remarked yes! on that too. I was like, what? I never noticed it. I before. never noticed that either, but I was like, whoa. So just, you know, talking about neoliberalism. No, right. no. And and yeah, his character, wow. And just to remind folks, if it's been a while, there's that scene where he's eating steak and he's like, I know this isn't real, but it tastes so good. And then it just immediately cuts to this scene where they're eating gruel, you know, and it's just that that choice, really. And uh, and and then, yeah, Carly brought up so many good points, particularly around the one. And, you know, maybe we'll, I hope we'll get to a point of this conversation where we talk about the problems of the film or not problems, but looking historically of where we are now, what we might see, but the, the, the fact of the one, right. And that, that it's, you know, white male character um, as well. Um, And yeah, there isn't so much an appreciation. I love what you just said, Carly, about he can't really do much without his team, you know? And, and so that's really interesting. And I, I, I wondered what Ayn Rand would think of the film. You know, what, what would be, cause it could, it could be an Atlas shrugged character, you know, yes. in a lot of ways. But then, so then I tried to think of it as, well, maybe uh, Neo is represents all of us. And the, the way that the Oracle points to that sign above her door, I don't remember the actual words, but it was something like self-knowledge, knowing oneself. And so maybe, you know, knowing oneself or coming into self-actualization would be the spiritual term, I bet. But maybe it's this is all of our journeys into self-actualization and into kind of contribution to this systems change that we wish. But, you know, if if I were to go back to the red pill, red pill, blue pill or in watching it now and what I the question, the, the choices that I saw, one of them, I did think, as you mentioned, Carly, around my process of radicalization, like when did it happen for me? And it really happened for me. I was listening to KQED a lot. And if folks don't know KQED, it's 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 like maybe liberal, um, liberal Democrat radio. Uh, there's there's a show called The Marketplace that I used to listen to oh, a lot. I know The Marketplace. Yes, which in hindsight, yeah, a totally different feeling about it. But I mean, great, great radio, but not very not not leftist. But then there was one time when a I changed the channel from KQED and was listening to KPFA, which is a more leftist radio station. And Chris Hedges was on and Chris Hedges was giving a talk. And that really was part of this radicalization. And so Mm. I really saw that as a moment for me of the red pill, blue pill, where I was like, if I continue to listen to Chris Hedges and go down this route, then everything, you know, the concept of borders, (laughs) the concept of prisons, the concept of you know history and and colonization and legacies of slavery and capital capitalism everything starts to unravel and so the the most relevant thing for me today that i see the red pill blue pill and this is really largely for folks with the context of the us who are listening is that the us is a settler colony this is something yes. that i heard recently and i think i would have known it earlier if somebody would have said oh the us is a settler colony i would have said yes but for some reason it hit me deeper more recently of like the us is a settler colony meaning that 
uh, the col the colonial folks who came originally, but also still today, seek to replace the original peoples. And I am I, I feel right now that I'm a very real experience of like really accepting and realizing that the U.S. is a settler colony, particularly with all of the land acknowledgments that that happen. Um, and, and I'm just like, what do I do with that? You know, and how do I live? And so that that's been my most recent experience of red pill, blue pill is that realization of what what do I do as a white person on stolen land, essentially? Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up, Della. It's germane to a conversation we had recently around another movie that I cannot recommend enough. Um, it's a movie called Ravenous. Uh also made in 1999 looks like nothing else made in in this same year it's like a cannibal western just to be very uh gauche about it it's so much more than that <laughs> but a lot more than that. it's a lot more than that but in watching this movie shout out to matt monagle who uh heads up certified forgotten um and is the person that uh brought us this this beautiful film in watching this movie I, too, was confronted with this idea of the U.S. being a settler colony, um, and it hit different, as you said, and the thing that the movie churned up for me um, was a lot of questions around the ways in which we, as a settler colony, have quite literally eaten everything that we've colonized, and we've feigned this civility while we've been doing it uh civility uh while we have been doing something that's intensely barbaric intensely violent um and i thought about that movie for days after we watched it um and i'm still thinking about it because you know what we learn as children particularly growing up in the california school system it's like you learn about missions and like all that fun stuff, right? And we totally didn't get the version that actually took place um, and how violent those places were for indigenous populations. And as, you know, as I've turned through my own sort of, like I come back around to these same ideas and each time I do, I feel a little bit different or I feel it, it goes deeper. This idea of the US being a settler colony, both with Ravenous and I think with The Matrix, to bring it back to your point, I saw, I'm seeing the, not only the uh, nefariousness of the history, but also how it's still everywhere today. And that's when you bring up this question, how as a white person do I exist in this place when my existence, frankly, is one that is inherently colonial and violent? Um, I don't have answers to that, but the fact that it's a question that is rolling around in our brains is, I think, part part of the red pill. I want to go briefly back to the figure of Cypher, um, because I think that his character almost feels like it's in more stark relief in 2021 than it may have been uh, in 1999 for its real world allegories and you know cypher is as you said della a person who um he like neo and the rest of the crew is able to do what he does because he chooses to 
Um, so choice is just is not just there for our, our our heroes; it's also there for our villains. And Smith embodies this as well. But if we think about how the red pill, blue pill metaphor has been co-opted by the right, um, particularly by white men on the internet. Mm -hmm. They too feel like the system isn't working for them, but they're misattributing the the bad actors when they point the finger. And and Cypher is a very um a very clear example of this. Yep. He points to Morpheus as the problem. Morpheus is the reason that he feels oppressed, that he feels like he doesn't have a say in his own life. And it's very much about his own agency and liberty, um, which is a theme you often find in this cohort on the right. Um, and also similar to this cohort on the right is that his decision is one that is fighting against control but is ultimately going back to be subsumed by a form of control, yeah. um, which is just this totally fucked up delusion, pardon my language. But <laughs> when you think about this idea that um, there are so many people on the right who, who vehemently oppose being told what to put in their bodies or what toys to play with or what words they can say. Yeah. To or, wear a mask. You know. To wear exactly. a mask, uh, but are insanely supportive of a bloated and intensely oppressive military and police state, mm -hmm. um, which controls them, but does so in a way that's a little bit more comfortable. So they they're okay with it. Um, I wonder what you could, what you thought of Cipher, sort of in that context of the red pill, blue pill, sort of right wing cohort. Yeah, I just want to remind us of that scene with the steak. He says, and I want to be really rich. Right. <laughs> and I want to be important, too. Important. He wants, he wants uh, you know, social capital as well. Social capital, financial capital. And I think, really, if we look at capitalism in our current structure, you know, in terms of freedom or agency, really, well, really wealthy people do have that to a large degree. Like, for example, not feeling the effects of climate change as much by creating those doomsday ranches. And actually, while I was reviewing notes about the Matrix on YouTube, one of these ads popped up so bizarre. And it was all about these like food kits that like, it, like, if you need to bunker up for like several weeks, you can buy this food kit. I was like, why is <laughs> no! this on the Matrix? Like, I don't even know, maybe it was me or them, but I don't know. But so I, I hear that, yeah, perhaps, yes, the blue pill or going back to sleep for him is a going back into submission. But I think he saw that the, the wealth or the, the power would be that which would give him more agency or power. But I also, the, the thing about Cypher and again about the ending where Trinity kisses Neo and says, I love you. And that's kind of what wakes him up, which I was like, Snow White, <laughs> thinking about that a little bit too. <laughs> But I thought what was interesting there was that just the, the humanness of them, because in some ways, Cypher's big monologue on the phone with Trinity and pulling the plugs of the people on the team, part of what he said was that he was kind of all, always in love with her and she kind of rejected him. And so that made me wonder, you know, how much of this is about his own disbelief in the system and how much of it was, is about unrequited love. And I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about how many of our 
you know, are shooters, right? People who go shoot up, you know, are, are a lot of times folks who've been rejected by a partner. And, you know, so I'm just talking about patriarchal supremacy here a little bit too, and how that comes in. But I thought that was interesting that he, he had this kind of unrequited love. And I wondered how much that was about this. And again, I'm reminded of um, what you said about uh, capitalist realism, you know, that, you know, he really didn't believe he was the one who didn't believe. And he also, we saw that he didn't really see past that reality of being on the ship and right. being in hiding and being hunted and having to eat the gruel. And so, you know, really he's in a prison of that capitalist realism where he couldn't imagine that once we get through this, this revolution, there will be another side. And so I think, I think he too was, was in a prison there, but I do also wonder why the ship was so uh, power down or, you know, uh, domination over, uh, you know, for example, they're always calling Morpheus, sir. Right. And there's, there's a little bit of opaqueness, a lack of transparency. Mm. They even refer to him as a father figure at some points. So I do wonder, you know, what would, what would a version of the matrix look like where it was a cooperative or a collective, or they use sociocracy or like consensus decision-making, you know, and, and, and maybe we'd have to watch the the second, third film (laughs) to get more about that. But, you know, I just, I do wonder about his, yeah, his, his feeling of almost internalized capitalism on the Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) in some ways. That's fascinating. I think you're right. And I think there is something there too about the, there's definitely a kernel of truth. um, If we're talking about these real world allegories to that emasculation, that feeling of emasculation Mm -hmm. that um, is often driving uh, a lot of these, these actors, whether it's from unrequited love or other men that they see as more, you know, more dominant sort of getting in their way of, of happiness. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Yeah. And I mean, it goes, you know, as you said, he's, he's unable to envision anything beyond the struggle beyond that, that position of, of, of another layer of precarity, despite, you know, the, the emancipation, um, at, at least psychologically for himself from, from the confines of that world. Cypher too, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, he so fully embodies this sort of like right wing kind of red pill mentality, right? In his alienation, in his uh, kind of almost thirst for revenge against like pol- powerful actors or people who rebuke him. And and also this like hyper uh, atomization and individualization of reprieve from those things. You know, when he goes back in, he wants to be wealthy. He wants to be important. He wants to have some level of societal power, but he just wants it for himself. You know, there's, there's no negotiating, you know, of can I bring even the rest of this crew along and save us all, (laughs) you know, from, from the get go, it's an entirely uh, sort of like rent seeking and and individualistic motivation. And it's a lot like the libertarian right in terms of what they perceive as Liberty, right? It's, it's not about the the dismantling of, and, and the decommissioning of these very oppressive societal forces, like a police, like, like the state and, and, you know, it's sort of oppressive components, like, like the intelligence community and surveillance and these things. It's about, having the option between a Whopper and a Big Mac and, you know, like being able to choose that and, and, you know, what, what brand of ammunition I buy, you know, ultimately like those, those are the things that they perceive as, as the extent of their reality and the extent of Liberty. And it's, it's just telling that, that Cypher embodies those same things. He's, he's fixated on consumption in every Mm -hmm. single way, you know, being famous, uh, you know, uh, 
having a ton of material wealth, getting to eat food that isn't gruel anymore, like all of these little things that are are purely means of just stuff. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought up until you said so about this sort of unrequited love and this sort of like rebuke and, and his sort of feelings of, of emotional alienation in that way as well. Um, and, and how that's so pervasive amongst kind of cis white men in mm -hmm. our society. Yeah, uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Richard Wolf's partner, um, she she speaks about this often, and it's 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 really touched me in terms of that question about like us versus them. Instead, having a sense of like empathy and compassion, she does speak about how white men, you know, used to be able to be breadwinners of a family, and then you know, since wages have stagnated and and loss of unions and all of that, and and also uh, women or folks saying we need more support in the home, right? That there has been kind of a a disgruntlement, right? And and I think you could you could really see that in this character. And I think I can see that sometimes in in folks on the right as well. Um, and yeah, that it, you know goes back to that question of control, which is so such a prevalent theme in this in this film too. Yeah, the other, I mean. I'll just say, just as an aside, you know, uh, there are people in in my circle of friends and family who like don't ever want to hear that argument, right? The sort of empathy piece of like trying to find the curvatures of where these people on the right, where their alienation may be coming from. There's a lot of like liberal rejection of even like entertaining that exercise. Um, but I really appreciate you reminding us that that's important, right? That that is, it is not to excuse behavior. It is not to align with moral decision-making that may be happening, but it is to understand the problems that exist on all sides of the spectrum for everyone involved in the system um, so that you can find solutions that meet the most people's needs as possible. You brought up something else that I want to come to because I mentioned this to Aaron when we were talking about the movie that the thing that feels so to put it flatly socialist about this movie is that the the movie is about choice yes but it is as you said about human connection um, and this film and its subsequent films really drives that home um, in in explicit ways and in ways that aren't so obvious. I'm thinking uh, in particular of a scene that happens maybe in the second movie when Neo is stuck at the train station and he speaks with uh, a program and his wife, finger quotes, and their child, and he speaks about love. And the program says to him, uh, love is just a word. What is important is the connection that is implied. And we see throughout this movie that the things that drive the protagonists, not just Neo, is their connection to humanity in a very specific way and also more broadly. And, and the film is, not, is, is unflinching in its um, commentary about that, in its, uh, in its support of, of that theme. And I'm thinking specifically about the end of this movie when Neo goes back into the Matrix to save Morpheus, and yes, when Trinity ultimately saves him by telling him that she loves him, but 
I actually think the more profound um, example of love or maybe more novel example of love that can be applied more broadly to a sort of socialist perspective is um, Neo's belief in something bigger than himself uh, that drives him to go back in for Morpheus. This person who uh, he has a recent but powerful connection to and who also, as Morpheus says, believes something about Neo that he doesn't even think is true. But that's enough to galvanize him to go back into the matrix and save him because he thinks there's something real there. There is some kernel of truth in this belief that Morpheus has. All that to say, I, I love that this is an action film that's ultimately about our connection to one another, literally and metaphorically. Um, and it's, it's beautiful to consider it that way. Um, beyond just the relationship between Neo and uh, Trinity, but also in all these other characters. But this does get, I think, sometimes misread or underrecognized within the film. And I, I think that this might be uh, a, a good place to talk a little bit about something that Delory brought up, which is maybe some of the problems with the film as it stands as a single text, which is absolutely this kind of very standard Western narrative of the one, of the single individual, of the hero, um, you know, this is very kind of- The man with no name. Right, the Joseph Campbell kind of hero's journey sort of thing here. Um, and yes, I, I ultimately think that the film if it has a reading that is is much more uh, about collective victory and you know the idea of this hero mythos is problematized by the subsequent sequels and they do a lot to dismantle it and actually kind of show us that he's not really this special guy um but i but i think that you know correct me if i'm wrong Della, but this this is one of the things where where i think a, a problem arises when you look at the the text as a as a standalone film yes and <laughs> Yeah, definitely the one, the concept of the one. And, and as I said, it the way that was helpful for me to reframe that was that we're all on various heroes' journeys and mm. that self-knowledge and self-actualization can be something that we each kind of achieve. But on the hero's journey, even if we take that standard uh, journey of Joseph Campbell, there are comrades along the way, there are mentors, there are friends. And, mm -hmm. and so I found that kind of reframe to be helpful. But yeah, I, I I definitely hear that challenge, and and also all the 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 Christian uh, languaging that was mm -hmm. in rewatching it. You know, the references to Zion, Zebuchadnezzar, the different different things like that. It was 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 I I didn't research this. Maybe you all did, but like why why such Christian and and even Jesus like undertones? Yeah, I mean, there's a resurrection narrative in here, right? <laughs> yes, and 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 uh, um, Judas right? Betrayal and Judas mm -hmm. narrative as well. And then the other kind of challenge that I saw was, uh, as you already brought up, the violence as the answer. And which is so interesting, because at the end, he realizes he can put his hand up and the bullets drop, which, you know, could could be, you know, a connection with Gandhi, right? You know, like, holding back um, or protest, right? And and yet the scene where he's like, we're going to need a lot of guns. And then all those guns appear and him and Trinity get really, yeah. you know, armed. And then they shoot up that whole hall that they come into. And 
can I don't know if you felt this I'm, I'm sure you did but just it was like the security guards were the ones getting killed right and so mm-hmm. talk about class consciousness like they they were the victims in this and I, I thought about mass shootings today right yep. <laughs> I, mean, I thought about you know how so many folks have said that those kind of scenes lead to this glamorization of, of mass shootings so I thought about that in, in retrospect as well I don't know if you had any other criticisms of the film in that regard it's interesting that you say that, you know, um, I, I was listening to uh, another podcast uh, about uh, 90s films, specifically about films of 1999, and they were talking about The Matrix um, and brought up uh, Roger Ebert's review of the film. Uh, and he liked it, you know, but he gave it three stars as opposed to like that coveted four star rating, you know. <laughs> um, and, and one of the criticisms that he had of the film is that he was so on board with the transport of quality of the film, so ready to engage with it uh, in terms of its like philosophical underpinnings and and the ideas it was playing with, that he was ultimately incredibly disappointed that it sort of devolved into an action movie in its third act. He's like, I wanted more. It's like, you know, the, the thing that was so frustrating, I think, to him is that it's one of those rare films that's dealing with those those very thoughtful concepts and then turns into explosiveness uh, but but that he was willing to go there. You know, it's like, usually this is something that I find impenetrable. Usually this is something that that keeps me at a distance. And in this case, I wanted them to pull me even deeper in and get me to talk about this further. Um, and then and then the film doesn't do that. So I, I think I agree with you in that regard that it it is ultimately, you know, like very violent. It's 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 kind of this explosive action movie. I think that that also speaks, I think, or or is, you know, one of the things that is responsible for so much of its mass appeal. Um, is that you know it, it it could be met at at a lot of different levels, so I I think that there's certainly something to be said about you know th- those elements of the film, uh, being sort of tantamount to its success uh, at the at the box office. But I I think I agree with you that the later films, even though there is you know of course action and violence, tend to get that thing a little more right, which is leave me with a very complex sort of of allegories and, and philosophical things to ponder as opposed to we saved the day and we blew up the bad guys. And this film, we haven't even gotten in, this film is like, there's so much to talk about. We haven't even gotten into the transgender um, read of the film, yeah. but I'll, I'll bring it up here to say that it seems like, and also just s- what the Wachowski sisters have told us quite explicitly about the transgender read of the film uh, and sort of where their own personal story was showing up is is that the the idea of Neo as a white male, a cis white male, was originally problematized by the fact that they wanted people to be uh, gender switched. So like when you're in the matrix, you're a man, but um, when you're pulled out of the matrix, you're a woman. There was at least one character. So the character whose name is actually Switch. Switch. Uh, was going to be played by two different actors and be, you know, a, a relatively androgynous female actor within the Matrix, and then a male outside of it as well, and actually complicate that that idea of of gender dysphoria a little bit further. And so, I think when you understand some of the ways in which this movie was trying to subvert some of those more heteronormative narratives, hero narratives that we're all familiar with. Um, you see the ways in which the studio came in and did the thing that it does, right? Which is flatten those out and smooth the edges and makes makes things fit to the system 
But I think what's interesting too about, you know, the, the sort of Christian iconography and very explicit language, as you said, is that my understanding of, of the Wachowski sisters is that they are not intensely religious uh, and in fact have a certain amount of distrust and antagonism toward toward organized religion because of how oppressive and uh, and harmful it can be, particularly to people who are trans. And so what I took a lot of the, in, in rereading a lot of the Christ narrative and uh, explicit theological references, I took that less as a decision of a conscious decision on the part of the filmmakers um, and more as sort of a kind of a casualty of a pop cultural narrative in the late 90s in America. And, And I don't know how right that is, but there's some of it that just that feels happenstance. Obviously, there's a lot that isn't right. The Nebuchadnezzar and uh, and the very explicit resurrection of of Neo, but I guess because there are so many other things about the movie that feel so anti-establishment and feel like they're really trying to challenge uh, systems of oppression, which Christianity is one, that I kind of dismiss them and just assume that they're um, they're sort of more aesthetic trappings. But they are a problem, regardless of whether or not they're there, you know, for for a real reason. I also found some Buddhist undertones too. Oh, please say more. Well, there was, there were definitely, I mean, a lot of the fighting scenes had, you know, whether it was Kung Fu or there were some, there were some Mm -hmm. references there and some of the the clothing and, and that too. But then just the theme of enlightenment, the theme of the dissolving of the ego, the dissolving of duality, you know, dual Mm -hmm. thinking and, grasping like this whole thing around reality it, it, it there were a lot of buddhist undertones to me and and i feel like once he fell and got the kiss and then stood up again i don't know if you felt this but i felt different watching that scene like mm-hmm. i felt somehow empowered or lighter like just this you know yeah no longer seeing duality no longer buying into the yeah the the lies essentially and and yeah, his 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 enlightenment really, I could I could see it. So yeah, I also felt uh, you know Buddhism undertones there. I, I think the Wachowskis actually have in interviews said that they they are Buddhists or or at mm-hmm. least ascribe to much of the the teachings of of it. Um, so I think that that's absolutely there. Um, I, it got brought up while we were talking, and I and I do want to approach this and and you know maybe use this as sort of like the last the last third because i know we're we're going a little long here but um obviously you know at, following the release of this film and the popularity and rise of the wachowskis um they they both each individually went on their own uh journeys of self self-actualization um as as trans women you know at, at different times and there is a lot of this film that is read as a trans allegory right this opportunity to actually like as you said sort of sort of fully identify as oneself um, of course, there is, you know, sort of the the very explicit sort of textual stuff that is like being allowed to be yourself online or in a space where where you are outside of the confines of reality. Um, there's that really great back and forth between Neo and, and Trinity when he first meets her. 
where he says, I, I always just assumed you were a guy. And she says, most guys do. Um, and, you know, re- reading it, knowing what you know about the Wachowskis, it's like, oh, yeah, this there's a lot going on here that is dealing with this sort of uh, this this sort of latent identity that they're coming to to actualize over the course of their careers and their lifetimes. Um, you know, going back to and, and thinking about that podcast I was listening to, you know, the the guest on it is a, a pretty prominent trans film critic who wrote an excellent piece about The Matrix as an allegorical piece on, on trans identity. And, you know, they do a wonderful job of talking about her personal story, about talking about the Wachowskis actualization and about this film as that sort of allegorical text. One of the things that I, I was a little bit disappointed by, I think, was was the unwillingness of the moderators to go to more of the anti-capitalist readings, more of the the sociopolitical readings of the text that this that this particular critic was espousing. And I was thinking about how intrinsically linked the sort of anti-capitalist, the socialist project is to the liberation of the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, just just thinking about this film as embodying both of those things. And I was wondering, Della, if, if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, and also want to remind us about names. And there's a scene where Agent Smith either shoots at Neo or something and says something like, you're dead, Mr. Anderson, or something. And, mm-hmm. and Neo's name is Thomas Anderson, I believe. And then he says, I'm not you know thomas anderson i'm neo and i think that is that kind of yeah self-actualizing happening and yeah i i I think about that a lot right now with all of the (laughs) uh, gender reveal parties right where it's like Mm -hmm. people are rethinking them thank goodness not everyone you know and and really just (laughs) birthing babies and allowing the babies to yeah not be in a blue room or a or a (laughs) pink room but really be themselves and then and then come out of what whatever whatever gender identity they'd like to or even naming themselves. I've seen some folks do that. So some powerful stuff there. So yes, thank you for for speaking about that. And yeah, just the journey of, of self actualization. So yeah, I totally hear that. And I think uh, this brings me back to something I shared at the beginning around just supremacy. And I think when I again, when I go upstream to the from the problems of our time, I really see supremacy. So first that separation of our spirits and bodies or of ourselves and nature or ourselves and each other, right? Ego and eco, all of that. And that supremacy then leads to domination over of so many forms, including over LGBT community, over, you know, patriarchy, people of color, right? So white supremacy and then eco supremacy, eco side. So I think that you know, if if we see this film as an opportunity for enlightenment and for being with and for being, you know, in a co- the universe is a communion of subjects, then, yeah, hopefully we will, if we followed this film on, we'd move from that supremacy over machines as our domestic servants, supremacy under machines to this, yeah, more enlightened world where we can be ourselves and it can feel radically inclusive. And and I think, yeah, that breaking past the capitalist realism. And one, you know, closing thought I'd I'd add is that, you know, I like to think that that more beautiful world, uh, that's a quote from Charles Eisenstein, that more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, is just so much more fun and just and beautiful and thriving ecologically, you know, family-wise, all, all everything. Like someone once told me their idea of 
feminism is that a a black trans woman is has all of her needs met that she's happy and thriving and that you know that that happiness is shared right so mm-hmm. there is there is no suffering right of anyone and that that sense of happiness is shared so you know i just just that that more beautiful world is possible and and it's almost like it's so inviting that the the, the bad stuff just kind of falls away so just i, I guess i would close by just inviting folks to yeah imagine that to really and to take the take the red pill to question because i think that's where it starts right and it can feel scary and difficult as both carly and i shared around like whoa you know like realizations hitting us and like what do we do with that and Aaron, your invitation to like then get us into action right that that red pill is not just a not just a knowing the path but a walking it um but yeah i think this film for me, re-inspired a sense of the possibility of change and and also of the like, we do need to go through the discomfort and the difficulty and the uh, healing and the and the repairing and the reparations, but that that, that post-capitalist world is absolutely possible. Amen to that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll pray at that church. I think I think the Wachowskis <laughs> would be very pleased that that is our takeaway from the film that a better world is possible. Cause I think that that is absolutely what they're trying to communicate overall with the films here. Um, and, and with the messages that they, that they like to deal in and play around with in all of their films after this too. And I'll just say too, Della, you're reaffirming something that I've known about this movie, but uh, haven't been able to quite articulate as you just did. And that is that this movie, you know, is over 20 years old. Yes. But its message is one that that has absolutely aged well and continues to age well. Every time I watch this movie, I find more that it contains and I'm always energized by it. I never leave the film feeling depressed about what we're shackled in. As you said, I always leave the film with... Uh, an enthusiasm that's grounded in possibility and abundance rather than precarity and doom and gloom. And there are very few movies that do that and that have done that so consistently over many, many years, even with as many analyses and rewatches and and reviews as this film has had. That message, that energy uh, around what's possible um, is is still very much there and it's what makes the last line of the film not just some hokey throwaway line that neo says as the credits roll i don't know the future i didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end i came here to tell you how it's going to begin i'm going to hang up this phone and then i'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see i'm going to show them a world without you A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. So I'm I'm really glad that you're ending on that note because I think that is definitely what the filmmakers want us to take away. And likewise, Della, you know, your work at Upstream also names and I think accurately diagnoses the, the things that cause so much dissonance in, in our world and, and in our purview and helps us to make better sense of that thing. 
and also understand how to take action and, and to change those things for the better. Um, so can't recommend Upstream enough to our listeners if you haven't checked it it's out. so good. Della, thank you so much again for being here and talking about this film with us. Thank you. Um, as always, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Uh, shout out to our machine overlord, Linda, and uh, we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. without models, I began to believe voices in my head that I was uh, a freak, that I am broken, that there is something wrong with me, that I will never be lovable. Years later, I find the courage to admit that I am transgendered and that this does not mean that I am unlovable. This world that we imagine in this room might be used to gain access to other rooms, to other worlds previously unimaginable.